You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For February 20th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. We got a lot of good feedback on episode 85, in which we interviewed Michael Liebreich about his experience in helping to create Project Bow, a solar-powered standalone microgrid that powers a neonatal clinic in Sierra Leone. Project Bow radically reduced the mortality rate of babies at that facility, and our episode on it was a great Christmas time kind of story that I think listeners appreciated for how the solar and battery tech that made the system possible really had a life-or-death impact. But I think many listeners were also interested in how this kind of model could be replicated elsewhere, how the funding can be arranged, how to scope a project and design it for long-term viability, what kinds of energy supply and energy-consuming devices are best suited to address the needs, and what kinds of partner organizations can be helpful in implementing these kinds of projects. So in order to understand more about the intersection of health and energy systems in the developing world more broadly, I reached out to Rachenda Van Leeuwen, who was one of the key people who worked with Michael to help make Project Bo happen. Rachenda has a long history of working on energy access in the developing world, including working at the World Bank's energy program, energy access at the UN Foundation, the UN Sustainable Energy for All initiative, and as an impact investor in emerging markets for renewable energy. She also served as CEO of the International Women's Micro-Entrepreneurship NGO, TrickleUp, for nearly five years. She has a unique perspective on the global state of health and energy, and understands how and where philanthropic funding for health and energy projects works, and doesn't work. So it's a great privilege to have her on the show. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I think you will too. I also think you'll be surprised to learn which energy systems she thinks can really make a big difference in women's health in the developing world today. And I'll give you a hint. It's not solar-powered microgrids. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll look at three remarkable stories on coal, three tragic stories on oil, some new research on ocean warming from Energy Transition Show alumnus Zeke Housefather, and two more major withdrawals from the nuclear sector by major manufacturers. But first, our conversation with Richenda Van Leeuwen, recorded January 20th, 2019. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Richenda, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. It's great to be with you. You know, I decided to ask you to join us on the show after doing the interview in episode 85 with Michael Liebreich about Project Bo, the off-grid neonatal clinic in Sierra Leone that you helped create. So although you have a much broader set of interests around energy access in the developing world, which we are going to talk about today, let's start with your insights on Project Bo. Now, Michael said that you set up something called the Practitioner Network for Energy Access when you were at the UN Foundation, and that helped you to develop an extraordinary network of people who were helping helpful in developing Project Bow. So tell me about that experience and what that network does. Thanks, Chris. Well, I joined the UN Foundation in 2010 to help them develop a new energy access initiative 
And I had some background in energy access. I'd been previously in the private sector working with a private equity firm, Good Energies, that was investing in renewables. And we had a foundation at that time, Good Energies Foundation, which still exists, where we were supporting some of the very early companies that were getting involved in the energy access space and sector. And so one of the things I had really seen, even before I joined the UN Foundation, was how isolated a lot of entrepreneurs were in terms of developing new initiatives. So for example, somebody I knew who was working on solar issues for off-grid communities in northern Argentina, which surprisingly to me does not have 100% energy access yet, was facing the same challenges as another entrepreneur in rural India in terms of deployment of solar home systems, of working out the business models, in terms of some of the challenges that they were facing. So even though they were in very different contexts, they were facing similar challenges. And there was really very little in the way of opportunities for them to connect with others and sort of in a way kind of get therapy for energy access practitioners of looking at ways that they were struggling or challenges they were facing or opportunities and really connecting with each other. So what I did as one of the early works at UN Foundation was really talk to a lot of the entrepreneurs that I already knew and said, is there a need? Would it be helpful to you? Would it be valuable to you to come together in some kind of a group that would actually allow you all to connect with each other? Because I know you all individually, but you don't necessarily know each other. I'm a connector. And while I was connecting a lot of them to each other, I figured that actually it'd be better to have a more systemic way to do that. So I launched the Energy Access Practitioner Network in kind of late 2010, early 2011 with 20 entrepreneurs that I'd already worked with and knew. And then it very rapidly built to about 2,300 by the time I left the UN Foundation in 2016. And what was really interesting was that it was open to everybody who was focusing on some kind of energy access solution, predominantly really looking at the opportunity to work with either completely off-grid solutions like solar home systems or mini-grid. So it really wasn't focused on grid connectivity, but really looking at helping to maximize the contribution to energy access of the off-grid and mini-grid sector. And the reason for that was that I've looked a lot at the market failures, if you will, in terms of grid extension. And until I would say 10, 12 years ago, the economics really weren't there for solar home systems for anything more than the sort of upper income levels, but they weren't really available to the very poor and the economics did change over time. And I'm sure others on your show have talked about, you know, the, the massive decrease in terms of the cost of solar PV over time. Yeah. But it was really actually the recession, which unfortunately meant that my job disappeared at Good Energies. But for the first time, when the European market dropped for solar PV, that meant that for the first time, people in the developing world could actually buy panels at prices that were more affordable, because in the past, all the panel production had been really going to the European market. And that enabled and provided an opportunity for people to begin to innovate further. So there was a beginning, there was a nascent work that focused on solar lanterns, and particularly very low wattage LED lights combined with a two to three watt solar panel that provides for basic lighting, and in some cases, cell phone charging. 
and then really moving from there. So the network was global and it really was an opportunity for people to get together to look at, not in a competitive sense, but really more of a collaboration. In the energy access community, we tend to be, I would say, more collaborative, even when companies are competing. There's a lot of co-opetition, if you will. And at that time, also, the United Nations Under Secretary General Ban Ki-moon was looking at opportunities to really feed into the next iteration of global development goals. We'd had the Millennium Development Goals, and a lot of people believed that energy was a missing MDG. And for a lot of reasons, there had been those within the United Nations, predominantly, I think, the US and Saudi Arabia, that had not wanted to have energy discussed in a UN setting. However, from a development standpoint, it had become clear that energy was a key enabler for all sorts of other development benefits, you know, in the water sector, in the health sector, which we'll come to shortly, and in other sectors as well. And so at that time, as we were developing the practitioner network, Dr. Kande Yumkela, who was then the Director General of the UN Industrial Development Organization, was working in the context of the United Nations to look at a larger initiative and bringing it together to really help focus on energy access and also looking at the contribution of energy efficiency and renewable energy to solving the energy issues both in the developing world but also globally as well. So in 2011, the Secretary General launched the Sustainable Energy for All initiative And the work of the Energy Access Practitioner Network was sort of informally placed within the context of that initiative. And what it then became was an advocacy opportunity because a lot of people complained to me that their voice really wasn't being heard in terms of the opportunity for off-grid providers to present something other than a grid-based solution for energy access for people who had no electricity and that their voice just really wasn't being heard effectively. So we also used it as a mechanism to really help bring the advocacy and the voice of these people who were really working on the front lines in all sorts of very different and difficult contexts to bring their voice up into the global international discourse. And of course, as you know well, eventually there was a sustainable development goal developed and adopted as part of the overall sustainable development goals, specifically on energy and particularly focusing on energy access with a goal to bring modern energy access universally to everybody in the world by 2030. And it's amazing when you've grown up with electricity all of your life to think that when I started out, it was about 1.2 billion people who didn't have any electricity. Now it's somewhere just under a billion. So we are making progress. But when you think about one sixth of the world's population don't have even basic electricity. And some people have said to me in the past, well, they're used to living without it. But then you look at the health impacts it have, you look at the livelihood opportunities that they miss, you look at the impact particularly on women and children. And I think you need to revise your thought process about electricity doesn't matter if you've never had it, because it really does. And that's one of the opportunities that we've had with both the practitioner network and more broadly with the Sustainable Energy for All initiative and the SDG 7 on energy access to really bring this to the world's attention and to solve it. 
Wow, what a great little history that is. And so clearly then the practitioner network had worked together on things before Project Bow came around. Well, the practitioner network wasn't involved in Project Bow. One of the things leading the energy access work enabled me to do was to travel around the world. I accrued a lot of air miles in the years when we were working on sustainable energy for all. And we had a year of sustainable energy for all as part of that really to look at different energy issues around the world from India. We had launches in India and Abu Dhabi and Nairobi and Barbados, the small island developing states, and in the Americas as well, in Mexico. We were really looking at the context for different countries and trying to also look at who's out there, what are they doing, what's working, what's innovative. And as part of that, we had already begun to look at specifically the issue of energy and health. And so in 2014, I think it was, or maybe 2015, with a colleague, I visited Sierra Leone, where I had been in an earlier life, much earlier, but visited Sierra Leone, met some of our members there of the network, one of which was Energy for Opportunity and Simon, who is the head of Energy for Opportunity. And he spent a day with us. I mean, it was great taking us around some of the installations that his organization had done in Sierra Leone, and particularly focusing on a microgrid in one of the great tourist sites in one of the beaches just outside Freetown, but also in Freetown itself, looking at a hospital where they had worked to put in a range of solar installations to help with some of the work that the nurses and doctors were doing because of the poor quality of the grid in Freetown at that time and the number of power cuts. So from that, we were at UNF, we were actually planning to develop a broader initiative focusing on energy and health the challenge was that just at the time that we were there was the time of the Ebola outbreak. And in fact, I went on to Liberia with my colleague and in Monrovia, we were meeting with the chief health officer, who's now the minister of health, who was telling me that Ebola was at their borders. But in fact, it had already got to Monrovia at that time. We didn't know that. So as UNF, unfortunately, we were unable to take those projects further at that time in terms of helping to focus on health and electrification in those two countries, but we focused on two other countries instead, Ghana and, and Uganda. But I already had that network in Sierra Leone as a result of that scouting work and had kept in touch with Simon through the practitioner network. So when Michael first raised this, I thought, well, I know, you know, there's, there's not so many renewable energy providers in Sierra Leone that have track record already, and particularly not who have done hospital or healthcare installations. But I know of one, and they're reputable, and I've spent time with them. And so I'd sort of done my field due diligence on them. So it was good that Energy for Opportunity was already well placed to take this on when we saw the need in Bow. Wow, how interesting. You know, one of the things that I really found so intriguing about Project Bow is that you really took a holistic approach to this project and designed it from the outset to be an enduring microgrid with adequate local support to keep it running. And you made sure that there was adequate power available also, not just for current demands, but new demands that would surely be made on it as the clinic proved its new capabilities and its popularity grew. So for others who might try to follow your footsteps with Project Bow, what are some of the holistic considerations that they might need to take into account? That's a great question, Chris. So one of the things that 
really was behind the launch of the energy and health initiative that I initiated both at the United Nations Foundation, but also within Sustainable Energy for All at that time, was really based on the fact that there was a lot of silly decision-making, for want of a better word, being made in terms of development funders who were funding just a certain amount of the energy needs of a clinic. So I visited so many places where there were, for example, vaccine refrigerators with a standalone solar system. And yes, you know, the energy was going to that vaccine refrigerator. And yet you'd have a woman giving birth in a room next door that didn't even have an electric light. Mm. Others, you know, in some countries, people were being asked to bring candles to the clinic when they gave birth. I mean, this is 2019, you know, it's ridiculous that we are still looking at those issues. So one of the things was really looking at, first of all, not just saying, okay, I've got a number of dollars and P number of health clinics, you know, so I'm just going to divide the one and give everybody a very, very small system, starting it from the other standpoint, which is doing a full energy audit of the clinic. What do they need? What do different demographics need? Does this clinic really serve women? Is it open in the evening? Do women come here in the evening? Do they feel safe coming here in the evening? Maybe you need security lighting outside. What kind of disease burden is in this area? Do women give birth at the clinic? what is needed to ensure that there's a safe opportunity for them in terms of not only lighting, but other medical instruments that are energy dependent. Who works at the clinic? Do doctors and nurses live on site? One of the things that we've seen is that when you have doctors and nurses live on site, most of them, because of their training, have trained in urban settings. So they're used to having electricity. They're used to having lighting and a radio and a fan and probably a television as well. And then also with the disease burden, certain diseases, you know, I understand I'm not a health practitioner, but I understand it's easier to see the malaria parasite with a certain type of LED microscope that again requires electricity. And that requires talking to the health staff, talking to the community and doing a full energy audit and not just sort of saying, well, we have this many dollars, so this clinic is going to get two lights and a cell phone charger. You know, that's just not the way to do it. So it was really looking at a full energy audit and determining the needs of the clinic and then also projecting it out over time, which is, okay, this clinic is only serving this many people today, but actually if we provide full energy capability for this clinic, does it have an opportunity to serve more people over time? How is the type of service that the clinic is going to provide also going to change over time as well? And so really starting from that perspective, rather than a sort of top-down dollars and cents perspective, makes all the difference. And, you know, we've also seen changes in Project Bow since we started, because originally we were just looking at putting in a system that was going to provide energy for the baby warmers and the oxygen concentrators. And then over time, we also heard, well, there are other things that needed fixing. There was water issues, which is why Michael said, well, we're going to put a a faucet here so that the nurses didn't have to go outside with a bucket to get the water and so on. There were other issues as well that came up over time. So I think also not just doing a sort of one and done approach, but actually having an ongoing conversation with people and the ability within your budget to 
as some contingency so you can meet those needs as well. I just think those are all critically important. And it doesn't matter if your clinic is somewhere in rural Kenya or Tanzania or somewhere in India, the context is different, but those kinds of needs are going to be very similar. <laughs> you know, what just sort of flabbergasts me here is how just utterly obvious these things ought to be. Like, why have we not approached every project with this sort of 360 perspective so far? Like, why was this new? <laughs> you know, I've been scratching my head on that for years and just making my head painful with that one. It is. To me, it's just so basic. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. I find myself struggling today to decide what to cover because there's just so much news to choose from. So I'm going to change the format a bit this time and just mention very briefly some stories that I think are particularly interesting when seen side by side and leave it up to you to check out the show notes and explore more of the details. So to start with, item one, three stories about coal. Story one. According to a shocking report in the Deccan Herald, an English-language daily newspaper published in India, the so-called coal mafia in India has been running illegal coal mines that collapse and trap or kill the poor miners working in them, who are typically brought in from elsewhere. Worse, the coal mafia prevent rescue efforts that could bring attention to the mines, prevent the recovery of the miners' bodies, intimidate their families into silence, and offer them paltry compensation for their losses. Story 2. According to the Wall Street Journal, U.S. utilities are accelerating their planned retirements of coal-fired power plants and planning to buy more wind and solar simply because they're cheaper options. For example, Northern Indiana Public Service, a Midwestern utility, recently decided to retire four of its coal units in the next five years after receiving 90 proposals for a range of alternatives, including wind and solar priced at $27 to $40 per megawatt hour, roughly half the price that the company estimates it would cost to continue operating 
its existing coal fleet. And story three. According to Fraunhofer, an organization that produces some of the most nicely packaged data on Germany's energy consumption, renewables overtook coal as Germany's main source of electricity for the first time in 2018, accounting for just over 40% of electricity production. See the link to the Reuters story in the show notes, and check out episode 83 if you haven't already. Item two. Three stories about oil. Story one. On January 19th, thieves punctured a gasoline pipeline in a rural, impoverished part of Mexico, causing an explosion that killed at least 79 people and injured 81 others. The Mexican government has been cracking down on fuel theft, which has caused shortages and... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.